Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hello and welcome to These Times. I'm Tom McTay. And I'm Helen Thompson. This week we're turning to one of the most decisive months in post-war British history, 35 years ago next month, when Jacques Delors came to Bournemouth to declare a new social Europe and Margaret Thatcher responded 12 days later in Bruges with her own vision of Europe, a Europe of independent sovereign states. And our question for this episode is, was this the month, September 1988? that changed Britain's relationship forever with the European Union. Mr Chairman, you have invited me to speak on the subject of Britain and Europe. Perhaps I should congratulate you on your courage. If you believe some of the things said and written about my views on Europe, it must seem rather like inviting Genghis Khan to speak on the virtues of peaceful coexistence. Britain does not dream of some cosy, isolated existence on the fringes of the European community. Our destiny is in Europe as part of the community. That is not to say that our future lies only in Europe, but nor does that of France or Spain or indeed of any other member. The community is not an end in itself, nor is, is it an institutional device to be constantly modified according to the dictates of some abstract intellectual concept. Nor must it be ossified by endless regulation. The European community is a practical means by which Europe can ensure the future prosperity and security of its people in a world in which there are many other powerful nations and groups of nations. So, Helen, before we get into the Bruges speech itself, the kind of meat of this podcast, I think we need to set out the context for how that came about. So, first of all, it was written in Downing Street that summer, so 35 years ago this summer, as this podcast goes out, when Mrs. Thatcher and her chief foreign policy advisor, Charles Pohl, found themselves locked away in Downing Street in a way that they weren't expecting because of an IRA terror campaign that had come to London. A bomb had gone off at a barracks and killed a British soldier. So they found themselves in Downing Street with, in Charles Pohl's view, not a lot to do. So they finally turned to this European speech that they'd been working on for some time or they'd been thinking about for some time. And what they are responding to is the really kind of energetic leadership of the European Commission by Jacques Delors, who had come in 1985 and really given the Commission some energy after a period of stasis, really. And in particular, he gives three speeches that year in 1988 that really infuriates Mrs. Thatcher. The first one is in May, and it's in Stockholm. And this is when he introduces the idea of a social element to the single market. He wants to bring in a social dimension, as he calls it. Then in July, he goes to the European Parliament and says 80% of the laws affecting the economy and social policy in Europe would be passed at a European level rather than at a nation state level. This is a complete anathema to Mrs. Thatcher, obviously. And then crucially, we come to his speech in September, Helen. So in that speech, he basically says that the European community will provide a platform for guaranteeing social rights mm. and that European companies will be required to have workers or their representatives involved in decision-making. And this is such a big turning point, really, in the left in this country's yes. whole approach. Because if you go back to 1987 general election, the Labour Party, it was no longer saying wanted to leave the European community or proposing that it would if it were in government, but it's pretty mealy-mouthed. Which it, it had done in 1983. Which it had in 1983. But this is the beginning of a really significant turn in the Labour Party. Now, if you're Mrs Thatcher and you're hearing this, as you say, then I think 
that there's a really interesting thing going on because on the one hand, there's something changing within the European community itself, but there's also something changing at home. Yeah, we're responding to those changes. Yeah, because as you say, it's hard to put your mind back into that period of time, but it's important to do so, that the Labour Party was traditionally the Eurosceptic Party and the Conservative Party ever since Macmillan and Heath had, I mean, even Churchill and Eden going all the way back to the 50s had been the party of Europe. They'd obviously had Eurosceptics in there and that there'd been a strain of scepticism and, and obviously a big strain of pro-Europeanism on the Labour side as well. So it had divided both parties. But that was in the 80s, that was the mix, wasn't it? That In the early 80s anyway, that the Labour Party had been sceptical and the Tories had been the party of Europe. Mrs Thatcher had worn that European jumper in the 75 election and claimed to be, you know, carrying on the work of Edward Heath. Yeah, well, what's really interesting, I think, if we move on to the speech itself, yeah. is at the beginning of it, she spends quite a lot of time actually setting out the ways in which she thinks that Britain is very much a European country. Yeah, it's a, she, she has a famous line, doesn't she, where we do not dream of a cosy, isolated existence on the fringes of the European community. Our destiny is in Europe as part of the community. That's how she's yeah, opening up this Yeah, I think she says speech. something even stronger at one point. She says, relatively close to the beginning, I think, we British are as much heirs to the legacy of European culture as any other nation. Our links to the rest of Europe, the continent of Europe, have been the dominant factor in our history. But I think there's something pointed in that, though, as well, because she says, she says something about being in Bruges and it being proof of a European culture that goes back 600 years or that we were achieving great things as a European civilization 600 years ago. So she's kind of saying, yeah, Europe doesn't start and end with, you know, Jean Monnet. Like there's, there's something no. before that. Oh, there's definitely a thread. I think that that is quite strong in the speech in a number of ways in which she's saying you, the European community, or even we, the European community, don't get to say that we are Europe. Yes. Europe's much bigger than the European community And project. it's forward-looking in that respect, isn't it? Because she she has another famous line where she says, you know, the cities of Warsaw and Prague and those cities beyond the Iron Curtain, they are as much a part of Europe. They are, they are great European cities like London and Paris and Brussels and all the rest. So it is quite forward-looking in that respect. I mean, we've both gone and read the speech again, obviously, but one thing that really did jar, actually, there is a, there is another line which is not very forward-looking at all, where she's talking about European empires, all of our European empires, and how they civilised the world. And she said she says something about, you know, how we basically we shouldn't be apologetic about that. They did civilise the world. No, I think that there's a number of things that are quite interesting there. That really uh, hit me when I was reading it. If you think back to what we were talking about when we were talking about the right in Europe and the the, the drift in civilizational yes, language. Yeah. There's something of that there, in yeah. there in her in her speech. And there's another bit that I think comes at the end of that first section where she's talking about the idea of Christendom and yes, she Europe does, yeah. being um synonymous. And and yeah, and in return Delors is talking about or in previous speeches we'll get to this, he's talking about protecting a European way of life, which he yeah. means something else. So it's Absolutely. Kind of, yeah, yeah, we're back to that kind of Maloney versus uh, Macron divide. But yeah, I mean, this the speech itself. I mean, what strikes me about the speech is, I mean, in, in one sense, just how good it is as a political speech. You know, it, it deserves to be kind of up there as one of the as one of the great speeches. It's kind of funny in parts. She acknowledges how inviting her to Bruges is like inviting Genghis Khan to come and speak about about peace I think or some some quip like that and so she's she there is a bit of humor in there it's forward looking as we've said with also that got this kind of civilizational idea jingoistic in parts about the empire but I kind of think what I find most interesting is this combination of uh, setting out this very clear vision of the alternative Europe that what she wants, alternative to Jacques Delors, and how influential that has been at the same time as how little it actually impacted what Jacques Delors would go on to achieve. Yeah, I think though, in order to see that, what's going on in this respect, we need to go back to the single European market. Yes, in 1986. In 1986 yeah. is, is that Thatcher had been very enthusiastic about pushing for the, the single European 
market. That meant that the end of essentially establishing the freedom of complete freedom of trade, complete freedom of the movement of capital mm-hmm. and of services. And, Not of people. Yeah, and she's very keen, well, in a way, though, that kind of already yeah, exists. She's very keen on saying, look, this is what Europe should be for, in yeah. the sense of, like, it's about making, removing barriers, move, removing economic barriers. Yes, practical things. It's practical things. And she's really keen all the way through the speech on suggesting that it's about practical things. It's a means to practical. The the community is a means to practical um, ends. Well, that's also idealistic as well, isn't it? It is, because in part, she's also got to face the question of then the relationship between her institutional position, which is about the sovereignty of states, Mm. and the fact that the single market legislation, the single European act of 1986 introduces a qualification to the principle of sovereignty. The biggest the, the biggest qualification yeah, of, since Heath, isn't it? Well, since, certainly since Britain has been in, you could say it's the biggest qualification since de Gaulle had effectively ended any prospect of majority voting. And it, and it is so because it introduces qualified majority yeah. voting. Now, she's utterly convinced that there's no risk to Britain in that because the whole project is about essentially, in her mind, about market liberalisation. So why is Britain going to get outvoted on something where it's in line with what the legislation is for? But there is a real tension there because she's not actually straightforwardly committed to the sovereignty of member states as a be-all and end-all principle. She's already conceded that, and she's already conceded it because she thinks it's advantageous for Britain at that. Yeah. I mean, because part of the whole point, isn't it, of a single market is you then have to have harmonized rules governing that single market. And where are you going to make those rules? How are you going to make those rules? Well, you're going to do it in Brussels and Strasbourg. And you can't do it. You can't make rules for a market that big by unanimity. Or that is the argument. That is the conclusion that they reach. And she agrees that. Yeah. And I think it's there where the domestic thing that's going on and what's coming on from Delors in terms of his language, are going together. Mm. Because if the European community is about single market, then that keeps Labour like in its box, yes, so to speak. If it's about a social dimension, the single market, then that opens up the possibility that actually Labour might be able to use the European community in order to advance a rather different political agenda. And I think that's where that crux, the bit that at the time has remember it quite well, was quoted the most and was seen as the most provocative thing that she says, where she says we haven't rolled back the frontiers of the state in Britain to see them reimposed at the European level. That I think there she's thinking that there's something going on here that can change the whole political situation in Britain. It can change the whole political game, so to speak, and that she doesn't want she doesn't want a politics in which actually that the Conservative Party is going to end up as being a party that's more sceptical about the European community than Labour. Is. Yeah, I mean, the speech is an attempt to shape Europe in the way that she wants it to be shaped. Or at least to stop a change happening that she's worried will have really awkward consequences. Yeah, and she's correct in that conclusion. But I sort of think of Delors doing something similar in that he doesn't want to see the Europe that they have been building from the start, an idealistic, supranational, federal Europe. Uh, They don't want it turned into nothing more than a a free market. And you read his speech in Bournemouth, and he's saying very clearly that we can't, uh, you know, Europe needs an ability to act, to defend its social order, its economic order, to not be bullied by countries elsewhere, to not have our workers' rights reduced. And he also has this line about unemployment being the great crisis in Europe, which of course is a, is a kind of pointed remark towards Britain and Mrs. Thatcher's policies. So she takes that speech personally. And again, correctly so. This is a kind of conversation that's going on between the two of them. It is, but I think there's another conversation that in a way is going on in which Delors just is completely the upper hand. And we should turn to that, which I think he was in a way that you were alluding to a few minutes ago, Tom, and that 
is the monetary union question. Yes. Because actually yeah. in the late summer of 1988, Jack Delors' priority is not social Europe, is it? I mean, mm. his priority is monetary union and that what had happened in the June so of 1988, so three months before either of them give their, or Delors gives a second, the third of his speeches and actually gives her a speech in Bruges is that the European Council, so that's the all the governments, the governments of all the member states of the European Community have agreed to set up a committee that will be chaired by Jack Delors as president of the commission, and it is tasked with investigating the means necessary in order to achieve economic and monetary union. And the other members of the committee is predominantly the heads of the central banks. Yeah, including the, the Bank of England. Including the Bank of England of the member states. This project, as I think we've talked about before, so this is the beginnings of the euro, it was driven by the French. Um, Delors had actually served as finance minister under Francois Mitron when he'd had his sort of big moment of deciding what to do during a crisis for the French franc in March 1983. Delors had been instrumental in turning France or keeping France, I should say, in the exchange rate mechanism. But the French had become very dissatisfied with the way in which that was working. And by the beginning of 1988, so January 1988, had been pushing for discussions about monetary union. So this is a kind of like French victory and a Delors victory, what's agreed at the Hanover summit. And Margaret Thatcher is right on the defensive from the moment, I think, in her premiership that the Han that she comes back from the, the Hanover summit. She tries at the press right conference. Right until the end. She yeah. May, yeah, I don't think she ever really recovers from it because she tries yeah. at the press conference uh, to say, oh, we the British, we miss it. Margaret Thatcher. And one is this victory because the terms of reference she keeps saying don't include the word, the, the words... European Central Bank. And then she falls back on saying, look, we've always said we're serious about economic and monetary union because it's in the preamble to the single European Act. So even at that press conference, you've got the journalists saying to her, but actually aren't other people, including Delors, they're actually quite serious about having a single currency, having a monetary union. And if you have that, how are you not going to have a, a European Central Bank? And she, she makes the argument, which is interesting, I think, she makes the argument that says, Oh, the German chair, president of the Bundesbank, so the German central bank, and Karl Otto Pohl, he's written an article in the German press that explains how you don't need a central bank or fixed exchange, permanently fixed exchange rates to have single currency. Just read that and you'll see that I'm right. But actually, by the spring, the, the law of 1989, um, the committee will have reported, it will have set out a three-stage timetable for monetary union that she has to agree to start with it, the, net, the, the summit in Madrid in June 1989, and she has to agree. And then she has a huge... A crucial summit. Yeah, she Madrid, has a huge yeah. bust-up with both her Chancellor, Nigel Lawson, and her Foreign Secretary, Geoffrey Howe, over that that leads to her sacking Howe, as I recall, as, isn't that when he, she sacks Howe as Foreign Secretary. Hmm. And so it, it, which is very... Uh, and, and then by the autumn, Lawson's gone as Chancellor as well but you can i think you can you can go back to this summit to the hanover summit and say look she was misreading the significance of what's going on and then what's interesting isn't it is there is some there is a passage in the bruges speech yes, about monetary is. union ryan reynolds here from Mint mobile with the price of just about everything going up during inflation we thought we'd bring our prices down so to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. 
That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. The key issue is not whether there should be a European Central Bank. In Britain, we abolished them in 1979. To establish a genuinely free market in financial services, in banking, insurance, investment. I, I almost think, oh my God, I can hear David Cameron and George Osborne there in years later battling against the reality of what's happening in Europe and sort of saying, well, we need an opt out for the city of London. We need to protect, you know, the, the financial services and the, and the single market hasn't been extended properly to financial services and all of these things. I think there's such an interesting tension here. And I think it it is shared a sort of delusion, actually, that is shared by both the right and the left, the pro-Europeans, or most pro-Europeans and, and, and most Eurosceptics, that they refuse almost willingly, I think, to see what the Europeans think about their project. You know, Delors wants this, and he is pushing for it. You know, she she says that, oh, you know, I'm sick of talking about the central bank and I'm sick of talking about a European federal project. You know, that that's for the birds. You know, that's not real. And all, all the language in in these in these things that we sign up to, oh, that's just kind of fluff. That's what she's essentially saying. That doesn't it doesn't mean anything. The real core stuff is this free trade and all the stuff that she talks about in the Bruges speech, this idea of Europe that she has of you know, tied to America, free trading, buccaneering, not regulating British industry, all of those things. But that's not the shared vision of everybody else in Europe. And so she's losing the battle and she's losing it over monetary union and she kind of refuses to uh, accept it. But I think it gets this core notion of refusing to accept that you can't get exactly what you want. And there is this, there is a project at the heart of the European Union that people like Delors believe in and are pushing. Well, I think there's several interesting things in what you've just said, Tom. One of them is the way in which she moves between, on the one hand, dismissing these preambles and these treaties yeah. as utopian. Yeah. She uses the word utopian a few times the, towards the end of the speech, saying, you know, that this, that that's not what this is. This is not what the European community is about. And in any way, she kind of implies that utopians end up as nightmares. <laughs> yes, yes, she utopians, does, yeah. I should say. Um, but on the other hand, she falls back on, in terms of what she says after the Hanover summit, she falls back on saying, look, we haven't agreed anything new because it's just the same thing that's already exists in the, in the single European act. She practically says to the journalists, let me read it, let it read out to you. Can't you read that it, we've already, that we've already said this. I think though, the other thing that is going on, um, which may explain why she really focuses in the Bruges speech on the law in relation to the social dimension, the single market and what he said to, essentially what he said to the, the trade union, to the trade union conference, Congress, is that she is really betting on, in a very complacent way, I think, that Carl Otto Pearl, the president of the Bundesbank, will be able to stop this law. Committee. Yeah. She also thinks the Bank of England governor will be able to do something as well. And I was reading today that she refused to speak to him from the moment that committee reported in Delors' favour for the rest of her life. <laughs> she just refused <laughs> to speak to him. <laughs> I know. Amazing. I remember though when I was doing some work on this a long time ago when I was a, um, a PhD student, and I went to—I can't remember who it was now. Whether they were even in the—I think it was somebody who was in the Treasury. And then he and I sort of put that line and said, well, she just was furious with Robin Lee Pemberton. And he was very dismissive, said something like, oh, she never thought he was more than really the sort of, I think it was the Lord Lieutenant of Kent, that he took that more seriously than he did being the, the governor of the Bank of England. I don't think she ever really thought that Pemberton was going to deliver for her. I think she thought that Carlotto Pearl was going to deliver for her. Okay. And at the time, it's interesting because when it came to monetary decision making, yeah. and I remember, I do remember this, he was kind of, I mean, to go to say he was like a cult hero, that would be going like far too far. But he was in a very sort of, you know, he was quite charismatic, well tanned. He was sort of, you know. Everybody, every, a, everything that she probably like hated. But the, the point was, he was there was lots of framing him as because of the position of the Bundesbank at the time, the German Central Bank. There was lots of framing him as the most powerful man in Europe. Right. Like a kind of, sh like Schäuble became yeah. years later. Uh, uh, the, the, because the Bundesbank were, 
essentially decide the interest rates for every state that was in the exchange rate mechanism, which is why the French wanted rid of the exchange rate mechanism, why they wanted the single currency. And as she saw it, I think that the idea that Carl Otto Poor would agree to what was the effective abolition in a meaningful sense of the Bundesbank as a monetary decision maker, that the Germans, the West Germans, as they then were, were going to give the Deutsche Mark up. This was for the birds. I'm sure she put that into the utopian category. And in that sense, it wasn't just that the law was outmaneuvering Thatcher about these matters. He was outmaneuvering Pearl as well, I think. But why did the Germans then agree to it? I think that is a still a, a not entirely well-answered question, if you just think about it as like a historical question. What I do think you can say, though, is that there were some within the German government, in the foreign ministry, who saw that there were certain advantages in terms of reforming the European community institutionally, including on the majority voting issue, if they were willing to make concessions to France on the monetary issue. But also, I think, and, and this sort of has played out in the sense that because the exchange rate mechanism still allowed for governments to devalue their currencies against the German currency, the Deutschmark, the West Germans had to still accept that other countries could keep adjusting their competitiveness to try to make themselves more competitive against it was, them. It was in their interest. There's, there's, a, there's a certain way in which it was was in their um I also think it's interest. the idea, though, isn't it? It's, it, it's, the, it's the same idea that has existed, and we've talked about this a bit in, in previous episodes, the same idea that has existed ever since Schumann made his declaration in, is it 51, um, where the idea is that, you know, German industrial strength, German economic power is is too great for France alone to deal with. And it's, it presents too much of a, a risk. So you Europeanize it. And that way you don't have to take it away from Germany. You don't have to take away their industrial strength and put it under some kind of international guard or annex it into France. All these other options that have been tried in the past. You Europeanize coal and steel, the, the core kind of industrial strength, and then it no longer becomes a threat. And that's the fundamental idea at the heart of all of this. And then you allow Germany to prosper and it, they're, they're not a danger once you've Europeanized it. But then that same logic applies to, to almost everything once you start moving down that, uh, down that road to German rearmament, Europeanize the uh, the German army into a European army, um, uh, Europeanize the German currency into a European currency, and that so the logic is there, and it's and it's kind of clear, and it works. It's worked for France, and it's also worked for well, Germany. Well, I think though on the monetary one, it becomes a lot more complicated though, because even Delors, I think, doesn't really want to Germanize, if you like, the European currency that he wants to create. In that sense, his position is more like the French, which was to say, we need to have a different approach to monetary decision-making within the community. And we cannot do that so long as the, the Bundesbank... So it's like de-Germanizing. Yeah, it's, it's, it's yeah. going to get to decide everything. But that hasn't happened. But that's the point, is, is if we go back to the question then of why do the Germans agree to mm. this, it is because they agree to it on the condition that the monetary union that will be created will be on German terms. Yeah. And the, the interesting thing, think, thinking about Britain in all of this is, I think for a long time, we like to avoid staring these questions in the face. Edward Heath didn't, interestingly enough. And when he became prime minister, I think it was in 72, he became prime minister in 70, but he in 72, I think he signs up to the principle of monetary union or is it even earlier than that I, well he has britain joined the snake which was an exchange rate arrangement that was part of the plans for monetary the very first plans for monetary union that were drawn up in 1969 and if you read some of the uh the the archival documents now that have been released on Heath's decision making he's quite happy to talk about monetary union being part of the yeah. the medium term future for europe yeah, and, and but he's he's the only one that re, that really kind of uh, is clear that he wants to be a part of this. Like he sees the principle and he accepts the principle, and he's willing to. But he of, does take also Sterling out of the snake when we've been in for six weeks. <laughs> right, <laughs> he's <okay>. quite, <laughs> But I think there's various things though that come out of this though that is, that uh, is that I think are relevant. The first of them is that. 
in terms of the Labour Party, that whilst that they are willing, they, they do make, I think, a significant, I think it's a, it is a real turning point for the Labour Party, what happens in September 1988. Both actually interestingly because of what Delors says, but also because Thatcher's attack yeah. then on the EC yeah, and the terms the <laughs> in which he makes it m- mean that it's possible for the Labour Party or the parts of the Labour Party that don't like the EC, which is obviously not all of it, to reframe it in a different way. Now, it's, it's, to a, sort of, it's a protect, it's a to protect, protect her from to protect, Thatcher. Exactly, to protect, particularly at a time when they're still quite pessimistic, I think, about winning power yeah. again. It becomes a defensive move. But if you think of the law, which I think is part of what's going on, kind of using the social issue to try to win support over the monetary issue, if you see what I mean, because that's his bigger concern. Yeah, it's making the single market acceptable to European, ordinary European workers and and the left. Yeah. And then you can, if you've done that, then it's easier to get them to then try and think about accepting monetary union, which is obviously going to face some severe criticism from the left and not obviously, I mean, in a number of European um, countries. But I think in this point, this speaks to what you're saying about not facing things is that Labour then moves into a kind of position or moves into a position where it thinks about the European community, then the European Union more symbolically in terms of British domestic politics yeah. than it does the actual community Union. Yeah, so that- it's, it's not willing, actually, it will move to a position where it's much more pro joining the exchange rate mechanism than Thatcher herself. But at no point in this proceedings, even really, I think Blair never goes completely out on this and says, we're really committed to Britain joining. Mm. No, and- I think he kind of... He wants to because he's an interesting figure as well because he sees it politically, doesn't he? He sees that outside of the euro britain's voice in ultimately when everything is shaken down is weaker than the french and the germans because they have an existential interest that binds them together and that ironically is what we saw in 2011 when the eurozone crisis happened and david cameron vetoed the treaty that they were working on to protect themselves or tried to veto it tried to veto and they just bypassed him and that is that kind of points to what Blair understood about the political weakness of being outside the euro and the fact that there was this kind of systemic problem baked within. But it's obviously reveals lots about Britain's position and it's an our kind of failure to just face up to the challenges that we've got in front of us. And I think that's kind of all sides. We'd like to think that we'd found this sort of best of both worlds position after Maastricht in 92, when we'd achieve the opt-out, that, oh, it's great. We don't have to face up to this decision over the single currency because we can have our cake and eat it. We can be outside and inside at the same time, but it comes with a cost. But we didn't really accept that. I think if you follow this story through, then the monetary union story, I mean by that, and we get to the Maastricht summit in December 1992. Because all of this is building up to 92, isn't it? They talk about 92. It's the 92 plan, which is Maastricht. Well, the, no, the, master, the the ninety two date is the completing the single European market. Oh, right, they just ninety two, and the summit is is December of nineteen ninety one. I think, though, the thing we should just bring out is between obviously the events of nineteen eighty eight, and indeed between the end of Howe as foreign secretary and the Maastricht summit. There's the end of Margaret Thatcher herself. Yeah. In October of 1990. So as we know, it's John Major who is prime minister during the Maastricht negotiations. And the principal reason is over this issue. It is. And that's, I think that is what is revealing because actually Margaret Thatcher is pushed out because of her opposition to monetary union. And I think that what you can see is that there are people in the Conservative Party at the top of the Conservative Party, who suddenly, perhaps not quite so suddenly, but reasonably suddenly, shall we say, in the autumn of 1990, see that she intends to fight the general election when it comes mm, yes. over opposition to monetary union, that, that she wants to make that quite central to the Conservative Party campaign. Now, obviously, there's lots of other problems for that government going on, not least, obviously, the poll 
the poll tax, tax. Yeah. but that Thatcher is removed I think because there are people in the Conservative Party who do want to create the space by which Britain can enter the single currency so although the major negotiates an opt out that it's at least as much as an opt in because the ability it, to opt in you know, later. because it, yeah, it yeah. keeps Britain in the plan that they'd agreed as a result of the Delors committee the Delors report has three stages Britain's going to participate in one and two and it's got this opt-out of stage three I think what then changes that is Black Wednesday when Britain leaves the exchange rate mechanism and it's thereafter I think both in the Labour Party and in the Conservative Party at the top there's just huge wariness about any idea that Britain can join a collective European monetary arrangement. And as I say, I think even Blair, whilst he sees the advantage in terms of, if you like, let's call it the power politics within the European Union being at the top table, so to speak, with the French and Germans, even he can see that there's a set of economic issues. Yeah, he's he's wary of that. And that's why he's willing to sort of concede the economic questions around it to brown yeah i think you mentioned how thinks that um i think he he has said later on that the brew speech is the moment mrs thatcher let her heart start to rule her head in his view so this is the moment where in their view she is she's been a practical politician yes she's had these kind of eurosceptic instincts she is sovereigntist patriotics a mildly kind of power light on on these issues but thinks practically when it comes to actually governing the country and her own interests but 1988 in their view she starts to let her the her instincts uh you know guide her i just think that that's a fairly snobby and wrong way to think about it you know especially if you think then about 92 and black wednesday you know she is at, at the madrid summit she's she feels got kind of forced into signing up to ERM. Um, no, she doesn't actually. She doesn't. She doesn't actually set a timetable for it, which is what Howe and Lawson were trying to force her into. But she hadn't. She she set some conditions. Yeah, but there, I think there's five conditions, and they might be described as conditions that are as long as a piece of string. Right. In a sense, <laughs> had she she'd escaped that. I, I remember now what I'm reading back through Charles Moore's biography. She'd been pushed further into a position before the Madrid summit. They, where went the, to, they, they, they went to see her, I think, on the Sunday before that they were... It was leaving. the Chancellor and the Foreign Secretary yeah. together and basically yeah. said, you have to sign up to this yeah. or else we're gone. And then she didn't have to. No, and then she, she managed sat, to dodge it. Yeah, and she sat... Well, she, she signs up to these five conditions, but they can be endlessly fudged. Yeah. And then she sacks how um, from that position after the summit. I think though, that it's clear even before that, that there's this weakness really in a way for whichever side the conservative, whichever side within the conservative party, within the conservative cabinet, these the players, so to speak, are on. And that is that the British economy from the early the summer of 1988, you can then say all the way through to in the months after the Black Wednesday, has a really, is in a really bad position and interestingly if we go back to the Hanover summit which comes so that's June 1988 it's three months after what is supposed to be the grand budget that the conservatives in their entire time of office have made Lawson's big tax cutting budget which was like March 1988 increased growth and then Already by that summer, the trade figures are so bad that on the final day of the Hanover summit, that the government has to increase interest rates. And then they're going up all the way through from that point on because of inflation, because of what then becomes sterling weakness all the way through to the autumn of 1990. And it's because, and I think we've talked about this before, interest rates were so high in October of, so in, yeah, October of 19... um, 19, that the that Margaret Thatcher agrees in her last weeks in office that Sterling should go inside the exchange rate mechanism. Yeah. And in that sense, if you then look at Major saying we need to play for time here, mm. then that's part 
of that story too, because he's actually thinking, this is pre-Black Wednesday, that Sterling's position, Britain's inflation position, isn't quite really strong enough to deal with entering monetary union. Yeah, you go back and you look at her final months and years from 88 to October 1990, and you can see how those around her reached the conclusion that she was past it, she was just trying to hold back the tide of history, Canute style, and she just couldn't do it. So, you know, Britain's European future, but also then I think significantly the crisis in the Berlin Wall when she starts panicking and trying to stop German reunification and she seems like she's completely out of touch with the Americans and much of the rest of Europe. I think, interestingly, she is actually on the same page as Mitterrand at this point, but he's a bit quieter about it. But she has that sense of just not losing control of events and not being really up up to date anymore. You know, the world has moved on. But that's what I think is interesting about, you know, Major coming in, being in favour of the ERM and the Treasury line and uh, what Lawson had been pushing. And then it all comes crashing down in 1992. And I think that combination of you go from 88 to 92, the story that is, I think, become an important and quite powerful narrative in the Conservative Party, just as the Labour Party changed into a much more pro-European party after Delors' intervention in Bournemouth. That period of time, 88 to 92, is now seen as this kind of the, the triumph of Margaret Thatcher. Like She was right. And if, we, if only we had listened to her, we wouldn't have got into this position. That's the story that the Eurosceptics believe that's all, and that they tell. And evidently there is some truth in it. And I think this is why the Bruce speech is so important. And it's not because it had an impact in Europe in that she lost the battle. She didn't get the Europe that she was trying to create. But imaginatively, it has taken such a hold over the Conservative Party and the way it thinks about history. So you have the Bruges group that is set up shortly after. And this is a campaign for a Europe of independent sovereign states, whatever the line was she has in the Bruges speech. That becomes the kind of caucus in Parliament where she becomes its honorary president, I think. And then you have Conservative MPs becoming more hostile to Europe, Eurosceptic MPs organising through the Bruges group. And it's at this time, its founder is actually a guy called Patrick Robertson, who was a student at Oxford at the time of the Bruges speech. And he set up the party and left university and set up the Bruges group. He went on to help found the referendum party that was the Jimmy Goldsmith's party that ran up towards 1997, campaigning for a referendum on Europe that had people like Priti Patel involved in it from that moment on, who obviously goes on to have a big role in later years. You then get the sort of split, I think, in the Eurosceptics between the Bruges groups types that stay in the Conservative Party, and then UKIP and the referendum party and these kind of different factions on the right and then this like total shrinking of the euroscepticism on the left and it all i think comes back to this moment in time in 1988 i mean i think that it certainly explains quite a lot in terms of the trajectory of the conservative party and if you like the, the sort of the eco world round the political eco world round the conservative yeah. um party and when you add in the way in which Thatcher was forced out of office by her cabinet colleagues yeah, yeah. into that story, it gets even more potent, I think, in terms of its... Yeah, stab um, in the back, like all of that, it, all that, that stuff. stuff. Yeah. I think, though, you struggle, I think, to run a line which said that you can get to David Cameron's decision, let's just say, from the moment he made the Bloomberg speech... January 2013, when he said that in the event of the majority Conservative government, there would be a ref an in-out referendum after um, after renegotiations of the terms of membership. I think to get to that point, you then need to add in two things: really, the eurozone crisis, yeah, and the ways in which that opened up the issue of the City of London's relationship to the eurozone and not as quickly as it 
did that. But then the question of increased migration from Southern Europe. Oh, you need lots of other things, don't you? But I think the story goes back to 88 to 92. And then if you don't have the referendum party, do you get the Tories and Labour committing to a referendum on the single currency? Without that, would Tony Blair have tried to go in? Because that's one barrier he thinks probably can't cross or he couldn't get over that barrier very easily, maybe in those first few years. I I definitely think there's something there. But it's interesting, though, if we go back to the content of the Bruges speech, there's nothing in that about the democratic consent Mm. issue. Yeah. Uh, And that it's only actually, I, I don't think that she says anything about this while she's still actually prime minister. It's only after that she's left that she returns to the referendum yeah. issue. Yeah. She yeah. makes a speech. I can't remember now whether it's when she's still in the Commons or whether she's when whether she's in the the Lords, where she basically says, "I've changed my mind about the referendum question, and the only way of legitimating the Maastricht Treaty would be by a referendum." But even that doesn't get you to exit, does no, it? No, I think it, it gets. I think what that gets you to is the point that. After the Conservatives have left office in 1997, that they become a party that is committed to referendums on treaties. Yeah. And that will really come to matter in the way in which David Cameron handles the Lisbon Treaty, which had been ratified without a referendum before the Conservatives came back into office in 2010. I think a lot comes to me to back to a sort of an idea of do you. Do you believe that you're part of a European polity that is legitimate and that its collective decisions are your collective decisions and they are, you know, uh, that, that you accept them, that this is this is your organisation? So when it makes a decision, you know, when it's pursuing a policy, a monetary union or something like that, once you've made the decision together, then you move forward as one. And I just don't think we ever bought into that. So we're pushing these visions of Europe, which aren't really what exists. They're our fantasy of what Europe should be. And, and I just think that's a, just a fundamental problem that most of our leaders have suffered. Yeah, well, I think that you could put that all that together and say that it's not that there's a sort of line that directly runs out of September 1988. You need a lot of other things in place, but it's a very revealing month. I mean, because even if we think about it as Labour's turn, it's got less to do with the actual European community than it seems on the surface because the big question isn't really the social chapter chart. It started off becoming the social charter and Mm. then became the social chapter in the Maastricht Treaty, which John Major also opted out of. The big question is the monetary question. And it's not clear that Labour does wrestle with that when it makes its turn to being a more pro-European community partner. And then you've got the fact that there's a very considerable complacency from Margaret Thatcher in what she says uh, in the Bruges speech. And even you might say, I think, someone like Geoffrey Howe, who actually... I hadn't heard that bit, what you say, when he's being you know, pretty dismissive about yeah. it and it not being grown up or whatever it was. But the the most controversial thing that she said at the time, or the bit that really was commented upon the most, was the lines about we haven't rolled back the frontiers of the state to see it reimposed. But Howell was quite happy with that. With that part language, of it. yeah. That wasn't a problem to him. That's exactly what... He thought, too, they're both in that sense reacting to the possibility that Labour is going to reconceive what it thinks the purpose of the European community is, which is basically to shrink the space in which the Conservatives can act on a certain set of economic questions. So what's revealing about it is the detachment of the British politicians on both sides from actually what's really unfolding in front of them. Yeah, And, and also what I was struck by was how similar the concerns were that, say, Jack Delore is, is making in his speech in Bournemouth. It's about, as you say, it's shrinking the space in national politics by creating common European standards and protections and rules for businesses, workers on the board, all, that, all of that kind of thing. But he's framing it very explicitly as part of this globalised world that, he, that is emerging and that he is kind of fearful of. 
And he's framing it as part of a way of protecting Europe's ability to act and defend itself and to defend its civilization. It's, it's sort of social order, I think, is, is, is the words, uh, other words that he uses. Um, and it's, and its ability to protect its standards from competition, both internally, because he's saying, I think, to workers and socialists across Europe, this single market act that is so popular with Mrs. Thatcher and others, don't worry, we're not going to allow it to drive down your rights and your standards and all the rest. But it's also specifically aimed at uh, countries outside of Europe that are challenging the European productivity or Europe's ability to compete. And Mrs. Thatcher is arguing against that very specifically. But God, it seems so relevant today. It's exactly how the conversation is, exactly how we still think about it here in, in Britain today. It's very much in the Brexit, post-Brexit conversation about how Britain protects its workers' standards, workers' rights. Do we need to align with, with Europe or do we need to, you know, um, or do we need to open ourselves up to competition? That just feels so relevant. Absolutely. And I think that some of these themes that we've been talking about, you know, going back to like the 1980s, we're going to be returning to in, in future episodes. Absolutely. Thanks for listening to These Times. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and share with your friends and family. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.